Hello and welcome to the Future of Work Hub's In Conversation podcast. I'm Lucy Lewis, a partner in Lewis Silkin's employment team. In this podcast series, I'll be hosting exclusive discussions with innovators, business leaders and thought leaders to explore their perspectives on the changing world of work. The pandemic has accelerated longer term societal, economic and technological trends giving us a unique opportunity, a once-in-a-generation challenge to rethink who, how, what and where we work. And I'm looking forward to exploring what that means for the world of work with our guest speaker for this podcast, Professor Ian Golding. Ian is Oxford University's Professor of Globalisation and Development and Director of the Oxford Martin Programme on Technological and Economic Change. He also has a fascinating CV, including being the former economic advisor to Nelson Mandela and vice president of the World Bank. Welcome to our first episode, Ian. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Ian, as you know, the Future of Work Hub looks at future of work through the lens of longer term megatrends. But we recognise that unexpected disruptions can have immediate and significant impacts on the world of work. We've all seen, most of us have experienced that the current pandemic has accelerated change at what feels like a record level. And we will obviously come to talk about the pandemic. But before we do that, I wanted to just touch on some of those other underlying trends, some of those things that have been shaping the world of work and having an impact over the past few years and decades. So if we leave the pandemic to one side just for a moment, What do you think are the key trends shaping the world of work? There's seismic changes happening uh, that have been going on really at an accelerating pace for the last 30 years. But it's the rise of the digital economy, automation, robotics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, which has really brought these to the fore at a much more rapid pace. The main change, I think, is that a widening range of activities that were previously the preserve of humans uh, now can be done uh, by machines much more effectively, 24 hours a day, uh, without having to be paid um, and without getting sick uh, or complaining. And it's that encroachment on human activities, uh, which I believe is both accelerating uh, and globalizing, which I think will be the biggest structural shift The second very big shift is that all our economies, uh, as they progress, are going through a transition from uh, first agriculture to manufacturing and now services. And so when you look around the world, you see a growing share of economic activity um, in services, less and less making things, less and less atoms, uh, and more and more bits. And so we go from a physical world where we mainly are making, we mainly employed, we mainly producing uh, products you can see, that you can put on a shelf, that you can uh, manufacture in some way, to products which are experiential, uh, products which are a service. And many of these can be traded, not all of them can't trade having your hair cut, for example, it has to be done where you are, experiencing live music. Uh, But many of the things, including, I would suggest, law, uh, can be done at a distance. And so it's that which is transforming economies. And as a bigger and bigger share of our economies 
become services, uh, what uh, those services are, who produces them, and where they produce them is shifting in a very radical way. Thank you very much. The first thing you talked about that there was the digital transformation. And I know that the Oxford Martin School has been responsible for some um, really interesting and notable research about disruption caused by digital transformation. And um, there are some really eye-opening statistics in that. I wonder if you could just um, briefly tell us what that research has shown. Yes, I started the Future of Work group in 2012. Um, and it's really been at the forefront of thinking about what professions could be done by machines, uh, where are the risks. It's not predicting and saying it it will happen. It's saying this is a possibility. The technological capability exists for these sorts of tasks uh, to be done by people. And, And when most of the tasks that individuals do can be done by machines, we regard those jobs uh, to be at risk. And in our calculation, which which got quite a lot of um, attention, something like 47% of US jobs are vulnerable to uh, technological displacement over the next 20 years or so. Um, about 40% of UK and European jobs and a, a differing share in, in, in other countries. So very significant Now, whether this happens or not depends on many things. It depends on the politics. uh, It depends on adoption rates, which are culturally and uh, socially determined. And, of course, it depends on the extent to which there is this determination to embark down this road. And there's been a lot of resistance to it, as we've seen historically uh, and as we're continuing to see today. But we believe it will happen. Uh, And in countries that have rapidly aging workforces, and I'm thinking of Japan, I'm thinking of China, uh, a lot of East Asia, parts of Europe, um, this could well be a boon because um, labor forces are contracting very rapidly. And so actually there's a great shortage of labor uh, and this could lead to be a solution to some problems. But in other places, including in the US, which still has a growing population, Uh, but particularly in Africa, in Latin America, where you have a youth bulge, uh, this poses very fundamental questions about where will employment come from. And it's also the case that where the new jobs will be created is not the same place as the old jobs being destroyed. And it's this difference in geographical location uh, that is often neglected in analysis. Many people, I'm thinking of the McKinsey Global Institute, for example, say less than 10% net of jobs um, are likely to be lost. In other words, there's going to be so much new job creation. Um, the World Economic Forum is it thinks that there'll be any, many more new jobs than jobs lost, and the OECD points to 13%. So those numbers are very different from ours, and part of the explanation is that we believe it would be very difficult for the people that are losing jobs, for example, in the north of England and the Midwest of the US, um, in manufacturing or call centers in India or the Philippines to get to the new jobs. So it's different people in different places with different skills getting the new jobs. And that really matters because that's where the social dislocation comes. The reason why uh, so many people are vulnerable is that basically machines increasingly can do any rules-based task that doesn't require dexterity uh, or empathy. 
uh, with increasing effectiveness. And it's not only in manufacturing production lines, it's also in call centers where automated call centers already are getting better customer satisfaction uh, scores than uh, personal call centers. It's in the back offices, as you uh, well know, in law firms, in financial firms, insurance, accounting, uh, and in many, many areas. And so it's that dislocation that we're pointing to, uh, which is very dramatic and will have a very significant impact, we believe, uh, on many countries. Thank you, Ian. That's that's fascinating and sobering in um, equal measure. If we if we turn to look at the pandemic, because obviously the pandemic overlays all of these mega trends that we've been seeing, and we know that it's been accelerating trends, but it's also been accelerating tensions, things that we might have predicted would take much longer to come to a head. So we see an acceleration of automation. You've been talking about that. But also, you know, very obviously, the transformation of office space, an increasing amount of remote working. And those things are going to have an impact, obviously, on workers themselves. But they're also going to impact our cities and our towns. How how do you see that playing out? I think the pandemic uh, will have a dramatic impact. It's not starting uh, any new trends, but it's very sharply accelerating them, intensifying them, revealing them. And it's that which means that what many businesses are saying is what would have evolved over a 10 or a 20 year time span uh, is now happening in the space of a year or two. That poses enormous questions. Um, At best, I think we'll see 90% of people going back to their offices, uh, but more likely 80 or 70% of people working more flexible hours. And that's going to have a fundamental impact, for example, uh, on property prices, on office prices. Our calculation is that it would take, if it was only 10% uh, less demand, it would take 26 years uh, for office uh, space to catch up with current uh, built premises. So it's really quite fundamental, even these small changes, how they'll impact on property prices, for example, of offices. We see what some have called the uh, retail apocalypse uh, in in central business districts uh, on high streets, and that clearly is leading to a big fallout of many many retail firms. We've seen in the UK, but even more dramatically so uh, in the US um, and across Europe. And that's going to, I think, lead to very big questions about where is the revenue base for cities, which mainly came from offices. Uh, and shops. It has very major repercussions for public transport systems. Uh, Already most of them were suffering dramatically uh, in debt and this has now been compounded. So the real danger is that we get into a vicious downward spiral where services are cut, um, they become less clean, less reliable, less safe, we use them less, uh, we have more cars um, and that would be extremely bad, particularly for low-income people. And what the pandemic has revealed generally uh, is this great inequality between those whose incomes have been barely affected, uh, who can work from home, uh, who have space and privacy at home, uh, and often see an improvement um, in their quality of life, less time commuting, more time uh, at leisure, more time at home, more time to hear the birds sing, 
and others who have to go to work because their work is physical, whether it's in construction or in a hospital uh, or in um, collecting garbage or whatever, and of course they're at greater risk. The increase in unemployment, uh, the increase in informality and in precarious work uh, has been quite dramatic. And of course, we've also seen a very high correlation between uh, minority groups, loss of jobs and also loss of livelihoods and lives. Uh, the incidence of COVID-19 has been so much greater on black, Asian and minority ethnic groups. And these inequalities have all been intensified. So I think what we're seeing uh, with this, we saw it in the 2008-9 financial crisis, is that when we are hit by shocks, uh, it has a very different impact on different parts of the economy. It's also likely to exacerbate the differences in, between different regions, for example, between the north of um, England and the south, uh, between the metropolitan and thriving parts of the US and the Midwest, uh, and similarly uh, in, in Europe, between the megacities and the rest. So although it will lead to some dispersion of activity, mainly because uh, there'll be some lowering of income in urban areas as offices and shops uh, decline, uh, and some growth in villages in commuter areas where more people spend more time and money, um, this doesn't translate into much further uh, afield dispersion. So people aren't going to suddenly start working uh, in the north of England, for example, uh, or in the Midwest of the US. It's not going to reverse the fortunes of places uh, which have been suffering uh, from significant declines. It is going to improve the fortunes of beautiful places which are an hour or two away from the major cities, because I think many people, many professionals will go in a few times a week and therefore want to be at that sort of distance. So in many ways, it reflects these inequalities. It also um, intensifies the divisions between young and old. Uh, there's been enormous solidarity uh, of the young for the old in the UK and in the US. Uh, the average age of mortality from COVID-19 is around 82 years old. Uh, and there's less chance of a school kid uh, being uh, killed by COVID-19 than being struck by lightning. And in the UK, uh, lightning is not very frequent. Um, for a university age person, there's more chance of being killed in a car accident uh, than being killed by COVID-19. But people, young people are giving up their social lives, their education and their job prospects and inheriting a massive debt uh, in order to keep the older generation alive. And it's that solidarity which has been both remarkable, uh, but also, I believe, is something that we need to reflect very deeply on because it leaves very deep and lasting scars on young people. How are societies going to reward them? How are we going to create the better prospects is, I think, the task ahead of us. One good thing the pandemic has brought is I think a, a recognition not only of our shared humanity, that risks can come from everywhere and therefore we need to care about other places, but also that governments can uh, do things that we thought would be impossible a year ago. Uh, 
the fiscal stimulus has been way beyond anything that previously would have been contemplated. And so too has been the behavior change, telling people not to um, go to restaurants or football matches, to fly and so on. Um, so we know that governments can, can do things when they want to and when they have to. And the big question for the future is how is that going to translate into a different role of government going forward and to ensuring that um, this is the pandemic to end all pandemics. It's fundamentally transformed work, um, but is it going to fundamentally transform our societies too? And that I would say the jury is out on. And actually, that that last point, that idea of um, the, the global impact, the role of government was something I wanted to pick up on because... We've been looking for a long time, lots of futurists, at the role of global dynamics. You know, in the future of work hub, it was a significant trend. We were watching it closely. And now we've had this global pandemic. Um, and I'm wondering what you think about how that global pandemic will impact global dynamics, globalization more generally. This is the most important question, I think, that um, has been starkly revealed. It was there before. We've seen it uh, before in the financial crisis, in other global risks, in the escalation of climate change and the need to do something about that. Um, and this pandemic, of course, was entirely predictable. Uh, many people, including I in numerous books, but others have said it would happen. The surprise isn't that it happened. The surprise is that we seem to be so unprepared for it. And that, I think, is the, the big question going forward. The, the question in many ways can be thought of about, are we in the First World War or the Second World War? Um, as all the listeners will know, the First World War, uh, although H.G. Wells had hoped would be the war to end all wars, through very bad policies, austerity, a downward spiral economically, rising nationalism and protectionism, uh, led to an even worse war. But the Second World War, in the midst of it, a new world order was created. Um, we've had a lasting peace in the sense of no more world wars. Uh, that was the achievement that was most important. But also the creation of the Bretton Woods system, of the Marshall Plan, of a global development agenda, and coordinated multilateralism. That has to happen again. Um, unfortunately, the signs have not yet emerged that it is happening uh, at the scale uh, it needs to. But to stop another pandemic, to use this as an energizing call uh, to arrest climate change and to deal with the other grave threats we face, including uh, nuclear and many others, we, we need to see this as a wake-up call. And this will take many forms. Uh, the World Health Organization, which has responsibility uh, to stopping pandemics, has less resource than a major hospital in the UK or the US Coast Guard. And one has to ask oneself why, if the chances of being killed by a pandemic are thousands of times greater than being killed in a military conflict. And this certainly is what emerges from intelligence agencies um, recommendations, but also from people that know about pandemics, why do we allocate a tiny, tiny fraction of what we allocate to the military to stopping pandemics? Why do we have a NATO for the military 
and no equivalent with resources for pandemics. And so my hope is that it will lead us to recalibrate, uh, to focus on what's important, to empower the World Health Organization. It needs to be reformed. It needs the resources. It needs the mandates from its uh, owners, which are our governments, uh, to be able to stop pandemics in the future, which it absolutely could do uh, if it was properly resourced and had the authority to do so. And similarly for other international organizations, we, we don't have yet an organization to take such actions on climate change. We have an agreement, but no international organization. On uh, world trade, agreements are stymied and reform of the World Trade Organization um, is gridlocked. In terms of finance, this has been a desperate time for developing countries. Uh, it set back the Sustainable Development Goals immeasurably. 125 million more people have been put into extreme poverty as a result of the pandemic, leading to the collapse of global economic activity and with it development. The rich countries have allocated over $12 trillion for themselves in fiscal stimulus to support their workers in, workers in furloughs and so on. And less than 1% of this has gone to development. In fact, in the UK, our aid budget has gone down by about a third uh, at a time when it's never been more desperately needed. And so this really needs to be a time, I think, that we recognize that we as a global community can only be as strong as our weakest links and that we do think very deeply about solidarity uh, within our countries, how we can overcome inequality and, of course, solidarity internationally, how we can overcome inequality globally, which has been greatly widened uh, by the pandemic. Thank you. Fascinating. Really interesting. Um, just a last question from me, and it's one we're going to ask all our guests on this podcast series. From a personal perspective, what do you think will be the biggest and most radical change for the future of work that we'll take forward with us out of this pandemic? I think for those of us that have been fortunate enough, and certainly academics are amongst them, uh, not those that work in labs, but those like me that, that work um, on, on computer screens, uh, We've been very fortunate to be able to work remotely. And I think what this has done um, is enable us to take that forward much more rapidly. So I, for example, now have a team of 10 young uh, postdoctoral researchers, and I've never met seven of them because um, I've recruited them all during 2020. And I wouldn't have thought that was possible before, but it's worked extremely well. Of course, we would like to get together but I don't think it's going to be necessary in future uh, to insist that people spend as much time as they would have physically together, which would be, I think, very good for people in terms of being able to recruit from a wider range of places, uh, for people's work-life balances, looking after family and other needs. That has been an extremely positive development. Uh, it poses risks. <laughs> the question is, why would you... Uh, employ someone at a, in a high-income environment if you could get the job done from the other side of the world much cheaper. So I think it's going to pose all sorts of challenges, but I think it is uh, a great liberating force. And I think we've seen the possibilities, whereas previously uh, the idea that people stay at home or don't work might have been regarded with some skepticism. 
uh, I think that now has been embraced and I do think that that is an important uh, step forward. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ian. It's been really fascinating and, and thought-provoking. If you'd like to find out more about any of our discussion today, please go to www.iangolding.org, where you can see Ian's extensive publications, including his current book, Terra Incognita, 100 Maps to Survive the Next 100 Years. Um, and we can look forward to your next book coming out, I think, on the 13th of May, Ian, which covers a lot of the really interesting ground you were talking about in terms of the inequalities um, deriving from this pandemic, and that's rescue global crisis to a better world. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lucy. Mm-hmm.